0: a stringed instrument, the cello. Tonight he played a brass instrument. Now he just sang. Have you ever counted up how many instruments did you play? You got a number? 13. Great number. All right. You know, I was having trouble playing my Pandora app today. I was wondering if... Maybe you could come over and help me with that. Okay. We are going to go to Acts chapter 6 tonight. Acts chapter 6. Uh, children, yeah, my wife just gave me the reminder. Children are looking forward to their class. So we go, in this, in this group, we go four years old to fourth grade, since it's uh, ladies, and I'll keep the fifth and sixth graders with me. So the other ones, four to fourth, I mean, four years old to fourth grade, they're going to be in E1. That's right across from the fellowship hall. So if you know where the fellowship hall, I'm telling you that because it would be wonderful if you would remember to go pick up your children after church tonight, okay? We like them, but we're not keeping them. So uh, I hope you will go get them as soon as we're finished tonight. We are honored to have the Sears family with us. Mike Sears, Melissa, raise your hand so they don't know who I'm talking about. Okay, and their kids. Well, see, Cody, Caden had two girls that went with my girls. Um, Mike grad- oh, graduated. Mike retired from the Navy. We met him in Hawaii. Chief, did I demote you, or is- yes, yes, okay. what were you after, Chief? Senior, Chief? senior Chief. Oh well, I'm getting to be a senior citizen, so okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't always talk about that, but okay. Uh, See, So you were in the Navy how many years? 26. And he used to give tours out at Pearl Harbor and uh, elite tours, you know, and I I never got to take advantage of that, but he was going to let me go out and snorkel around the Arizona Memorial. Only a few people get to do that. I think he has to kill me now that I said that. Uh, I don't (laughs) think that's... But anyway, I didn't get to do it, so we don't have to sponge the record. But Mike and Melissa have children that uh, love the Lord, and we have been at their house a number of times. They... They were in Hawaii for a couple of tours, and Hawaii's not a bad place to go if you've got to get assigned a couple of tours. It's the worst? Yeah, really? Tell them that. Keep them all away, right? Of to- to- Bureau of Tourism told you to say that. Yeah, You don't want to go to Hawaii. It's terrible. Just stay home. We're in Acts chapter 6 tonight. Acts chapter 6. I was with, a, um, I was with your teenagers today, and just be praying that God will work in chapel. The, the students were really attentive today, but I, I want to see... God really do a work and so pray for that there. There are probably some students that need Christ as Savior and pray that he'll make that clear There are always students that need the Lord to be everything to them And that's really my objective. I'm praying to that end that God will work And then you've got some kids. there just hungry for the truth And that's that's the ones you build around. I had a number of them come and talk to me today And uh, so pray if you would that God will really work and if you're more than welcome to come It's 8 50 in the morning and there's plenty of room on the sides here. You can come and join. I have no, we have nothing to hide. We'd love for you to be here. It's amazing during, during COVID how many public school teachers were found out, right? They, oh, they don't want you to know what they're teaching your kids. Well, <laughs> there's nothing here we want to hide from you. We would love you to come. So, but if you can't come, please pray. Pray that God will work in hearts. Oh, it was probably two decades ago, I was up in Vermont to preach, and I was speaking to teenagers for a winter retreat, and there was a renowned pastor from, uh, from South Carolina that had come up, and he was speaking in the uh, evening services at the church that week. I was a young evangelist, and I remember he said, you know, I don't know about you, but sometimes I have such a dilemma figuring out what's the right time for the right endeavor. He said, sometimes I'll be in my study prepping for a message, And I feel like I really need to be out making some visits right now. He said, sometimes I'll be out doing visits, even soul winning visits and thinking, you know, I really should be taking my wife out right now. Things have gotten so busy in ministry. He said, sometimes I'll go out on a date with my wife and I'll be thinking, man, I'll tell you what, I need to be in the study right now. I am not fully finished for Sunday yet. And he said, which of those is a bad thing? None of them is a bad thing. All important things. But how do you find the right time for the right endeavor? And you know, it's not just pastors that face that. It's all of us. I know that. I want to give you a message tonight I've entitled, The Proper Priorities. The Proper Priorities. It's from Acts chapter 6. It's a brief chapter. The Lord willing, we'll cover the whole chapter, and I'm obviously not going to have time to dive too deeply into it, but we'll hit the, the main points of the chapter. Proper Priorities... Let me read the first six verses to give you some background. So the church at Jerusalem was established, you know, their day of Pentecost, and they went from 120 to over 3,000. Very interesting, too. Uh, No drama teams, uh, no dance programs, uh, no contemporary music, just God. And they went to a megachurch. They didn't set out to be a megachurch, but they had over 3,000 saved. You get to chapter 4, and... Chapter 3, you have what I, I call the high step and hallelujah shouting hitherto handicapped Hebrew, uh, the man who's walking, leaping, and praising God, and he gets healed, and all the people gather. What happened to him? And Peter preaches and says, it's not us, it's the name of Jesus Christ, the one that you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this man stands before you whole, and you have another 5,000 men that come to saving faith. So if you're doing the math, we went from 120 to then 3,000 to then 5,000 more. We're over 8,000 people. It was commonly believed that Jerusalem had about maybe 80,000 at that time, so about 10% of Jerusalem had come to saving faith by chapter 4. Now we come to chapter 6, and the church has mushroomed. It has grown, and some difficulties arise. So pick up in verse 1. In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It's not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus and the Caner, Timon, and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, there's more to be said, but let's unpack this a little bit. Let's start with, first of all, number one tonight, the preeminent priority. Preeminent means the top of the list, the top of everything. You know, Colossians 1.18 says that Christ is to have in our lives the preeminence If I were to ask you, do you give Jesus Christ a place in your life? You'd say, sure. I'm in church, right? If I asked you, is he prominent in your life? Many of you could say, yes, prominence up near the top, but that's not what he demands. He says preeminent. Preeminent is foremost above everything else, above everyone else. I wonder how often we make decisions based on whether or not we'll go to church, whether, you know, other priorities conflict. Now, there are urgent matters that come up. I mean, if you're spouse just have a heart attack, I, you certainly ought not be in church, okay? You, you go with them. If one of your kids just uh, fell and broke an arm, well, you know, you've got to take care of urgent, urgent matters. But I remember reading a book years ago called The Tyranny of the Urgent, and so often what we, hap, what we happen to do is we let urgent things just squelch out all of our priorities. We've got to learn to structure our life around priorities. So the preeminent priority, let's dive into it here. Uh, notice this, business is secondary. So I jotted down A, business is secondary. Verse 1, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, and by, by the way, multiplied, when you think about the statistics I just gave you, 120, 3,000, then 8,000, I mean, you talk about multiplying. There arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Let me give you a little background. You remember, the gospel went first to the Jew. Remember, first to the Jew and then to the Greek? At this point, Um, the gospel had not gone publicly to the Gentiles. That would come in chapter 10. But at this point, there are some Gentile believers. They're called Hellenists. The Hellenist Hellenism, okay, they had been Greeks who then became Jewish by religion, and then they got saved. So they were Hellenistic Jews, Gentile Jewish people, who then came to saving faith. Well, what had happened was because the church has grown in size, there's murmuring, this undertone of criticism, of grumbling comes up because, well, the Grecian women are being neglected while the Jewish women are being given favoritism, racism. You've, you've never heard conflicts of racism anywhere, have you? And in our world, they're just working overtime to uh, exacerbate the problem. By the way, you, you know why people are coming through our southern border literally in droves? This is the freest place in the world. America, don't let people tell you otherwise, America is an exceptional country, and we ought to thank God for it, and we ought to stand up for it. And I will tell you something, uh, yeah, is there racism in America? Yes, there is. But you know why people are coming here? Because America has been doing everything in its power, collectively, to divest itself of racism. But that being said, there's always going to be racism. There's going to be animosity between people. Shouldn't be. Shouldn't be. But there is, right? So even in the church, there was this antagonism that's going on, because the Grecian women are, well, their relatives are saying, our widows are being neglected. Now, do you think the apostles were neglecting the Grecian women because they were Greek? No, they just don't have time. They don't have to, they were doing the preaching and they were doing the whatever was necessary to help the widows. And, you know, nowadays somebody goes to a widow's house to change her oil and help her with a, a creaky door that needs some help and caulking something and putting on splash guard behind the sink, you know, what were they doing? You know, maybe chariot wheel broke, you know, maybe barrow wandered off, maybe, you know, a lamb has wandered away. They're going to help, and there are only, you know, a dozen of them, and they've got hundreds of thousands now of people, and they just can't do it all. So you keep going in verse 2. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them. So they they had a business meeting. And they said, it's not reason that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. It's interesting, the word serve tables is like our word for a busboy. Any of you ever work in the food industry? Okay, how how many were either waiters or waitresses? Okay, how many of you ever bust tables? Okay, bussing tables where you get to clean up all the, I mean, I always feel bad for people at IHOP, you know, all that pancake syrup and all that stuff, and, and kids, oh yeah, kids with macaroni and cheese that ends up on the floor, and oh, what a job to bust tables. The word serve tables, that's what it means, literally clean up the messes. By the way, the word deacon, Diokonos means a waiter at tables doesn't mean the guy who tells the pastor what to do it's a waiter at tables oh by the way pa- pastors and and evangelists were called ministers which is a term diakonos as well we're just bus boys we're just god's servants there shouldn't be any superstars in our realm there ought to be super servants that's how god ordained us to be right so they said look but but it wasn't below their dignity but they said look when push comes to shove We can't do all the maintenance stuff at the expense of neglecting God's Word and prayer. So that's why in verse 3, they said, Wherefore, brethren, look you out among you, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Okay, that's the business of the church. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So I, I jotted down business is secondary. Bible study and prayer are primary. B, Bible study and prayer are primary. Interesting, the expression there, we'll give ourselves continually. Have you noticed in our realm, more and more churches are starting up ministries to people with addictions? All across the country, you know, churches will have programs like Reformers Unanimous, these kind of programs, addiction ministries. You know why? Addictions are everywhere in our world. Unbelievable. Okay, and so what are the answers? Well, the answer is ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. John 8, 32. Okay, so they said, we're going to give ourselves a certain addiction. We're going to addict ourselves. That's what it means, give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. You know, there are some addictions you ought to have. This is one of them right here. You ought to be addicted to this book. Every day you ought to be in this book. Now, I'm going to to make a statement, and I will back up my statement. I'd prefer you not say amen right now. I'm not looking for an amen. I just want you to think for a minute. You can say amen in a minute. I don't believe you'll ever be the Christian God fully intended you should be if you don't have consistent, regular devotions. Now, some of you already thought it through, but let me repeat that. I, don't, I didn't say you won't be a Christian. Folks, most Christians don't have a daily, de, uh, daily devotions. Do you know that? It's sad. I remember seeing a report in USA Today back when we all got paper copies of the paper, and... Uh, it said um, uh, America's beliefs, and it talked about Bible reading in America. Eighteen percent of American Christians read the Bible daily. Only eighteen percent. That's less than one out of five. One out of five be twenty percent, right? Less than eighteen percent, or I'm sorry, eighteen percent of American Christians read the Bible daily. Uh, the same time period I saw that was in 1991. I first saw that. They said at that time Americans um, were consuming television to the extent of uh, 7.2 hours of television a day, 1991. Interesting, in the early 2000s, that number of TV consumption dropped to 5.3 hours. I thought, wow, how did Americans stop watching two hours of television? Well, social media. All of a sudden, their media venue switched. But you know what didn't increase? This. And I would ask churches, you know, on a, on a Sunday morning, how many of you read the Bible daily? Because Sunday morning... That, that's when you'll get everybody attending, right? How many of you read the Bible daily? And it wasn't a scientific survey, but I just asked, and I want to tell you, it, it's generally about one out of five. It's about 20% or less, even in churches like ours. Have you ever seen that T-shirt? If you're in a country where it's illegal to be a Christian, would there be enough, if you were arrested, would there be enough evidence to convict you? We say we believe the Bible. Have you ever read the whole Bible? That's a, good, that's a worthwhile question. I believe the Bible, every word. Have you ever read every word? I hope you have. Well, I'm not real good at it. You know, it take you about um, three, four chapters a day to do that. But if you've never read the whole Bible, how about just read through the New Testament this year? Well, I'm, you know, it's, it's uh, February next week, so, um, this week, so uh, I already missed that. It doesn't have to be the start of the year. You can start right now. You can read a chapter a day, and you'll get through the New Testament this year. Just a chapter a day. Yeah. But listen, I didn't say you can't be a Christian if you don't read the Bible daily. And I, I didn't even say you can't be a growing Christian. I will tell you this. I was a growing Christian before I started having daily devotions. Um, my pastor's preaching was super. It was rooted directly word for word in the Bible. So I'm hearing it. And I'm growing. So I didn't say you can't be a Christian. I didn't say you won't be a growing Christian. But I will stand by this statement. You will never be the Christian God fully intends you should be if you don't read the Word of God every day. Now on what, with what audacity would I have to make such a claim? Uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Came to pass, as he went, he entered into a certain village. A certain woman named Martha received him into her house. She had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. Jesus answered and said unto to her, Martha, Martha. Thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. All right, now Jesus said one thing is needful. This is not the evangelist opinion. This is what Jesus said. And what was it? Martha is busy, man. She's doing her thing. She's exercising her spiritual gifts. She's a server. Romans 12, you know, that's her thing. And that's a good thing. In fact, it wasn't like she was just serving herself. She's serving the Lord. What's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with that. Problem is, if you're so busy serving the Lord, you have no time to spend with the Lord. You've missed the whole point. And so Martha's running around. You know, hey, Peter, Andrew, come get some water with me, okay? And, oh, I got to get the bread back there. And then, oh, we're out of water. Let's see, Thomas, can you help me? You doubt it. Okay, Nathaniel, would you help me? You know, they're running around. and, And some of you got that. So anyway, they're running around. She's busy, busy, busy. And she looks out the corner of her eye, and what's her sister doing? In her opinion, her sister's doing nothing She's sitting there, and just like sisters do, Lord, don't you care? Now, would you ever say to the Lord, don't you care? Martha did not hesitate to speak her mind. You probably thought it before. Lord, don't you care? If you do, why don't you tell her to help me? And he said, Martha, Martha, you're careful. Okay, what's the Bible say about being careful? Be careful for how much? Nothing. Don't be stressed, worried, worried anxious. Be careful for nothing. Okay, Martha, you're careful and troubled about many things, but one thing's needful. Okay, so in the context, what was the one needful thing? Well, you go back to verse 39. It says, Mary sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. That was the one needful thing. It's not my opinion. I'm telling you what the Lord said. So I love this out of Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest. It's either, I can't remember, it's either August 4th or 5th. But Oswald Chambers said this, the main thing about Christianity is not the work we do, but the relationship we maintain and the atmosphere produced by that relationship. That is all God asks us to look after, and it's the one thing being continually assailed. Was Oswald Chambers saying, oh, just live in your ivory tower and just read the Bible? No, he went to be a missionary to the Muslims. He wasn't saying, don't do something. But he says, the main thing is your time with God. Now, please understand, the pastor and I have a lot more time to spend in the Word of God than many of you do because you're working a different type of job than we are. We get paid to do what we're doing. Some people say, well, preachers are paid to be good. And then I heard another preacher say, what's that mean? Everybody else is good for nothing? Now, we ought to be in the Word all the time. I, 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 if I don't have quality devotion time... I can tell it in my preaching. and I I make sure I write things down. I keep a devotional journal because most of my preaching flows out of meditating in God's Word. You need time every day with God. Now, you might not have hours, but can you make 15 minutes to read your Bible? Will you? How about prayer? We'll give ourselves continually to the Word of God and prayer. Let me tell you about prayer. Paul said this to Timothy. You might jot down this reference. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. I will, therefore, that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. Okay, he says, I want you to pray for all men. And he names the groups. He says, pray for sovereigns, kings, all that are in authority. Pray for sinners. And he says, why? He wants all men to be saved. How many of you know that one of the reasons you got saved, somebody was praying for you? Anybody know that to be true? I know that was true in my life. Okay, let me turn that around. Who might be in heaven because you prayed for them? Paul says, Timothy, listen, priority number one, you've got to make time to communicate with God. Timothy was already in the habit of spending time with God in in the word. But sometimes prayer to us feels passive. Listen, we had a good little group came tonight, and I want to remind you that tomorrow night and the next night, 6.30, right in the fellowship hall, if you can come, we'd love to have you there. This is not to put the guilt trip on you. I understand some of you deal with commute issues and all that. I get it. I'm not discouraged if we have a handful of people. But I want to tell you, that time is so important. And if you can't pray with us, would you pray with us while you're driving, while you're commuting, you know, would you keep in mind... Please, God, work in hearts, work in the children's class, work in the school this week, work in my heart, do a work of revival, do a work of saving. Prayer is dependence upon God. One of my favorite quotes outside of scripture on the topic of prayer was written by a man named Owen Carr. He said this, a day without prayer is a boast against God. Chew on that for a minute. A day without prayer is a boast against God. What would be a boast against God? Oh, thanks, Lord, but I got this today. What Who of us would ever say that? We would never say that to God. But is that not in effect what we say when we don't pray? Prayerlessness says, I got it, Lord, thank you, but I'll take it from here. We would never say that, but that is what our prayerlessness communicates to God. I love this. The um, Puritan Samuel Chadwick said this, The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Boy, that's so true. How about this one? A.C. Dixon, when we rely on organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely on education, we get what education can do. When we rely upon eloquence, we get what eloquence can do, and so on. I'm not disposed to undervalue any of these things in their proper place, but when we rely upon prayer, we get what God can do. Well said. You have not because you what? Ask not. Why do you think he says that? If we could just get stuff by wishing for it, where would God get the credit? We have to engage in praying because when the answer comes, we know it was not me. It had to be God. Here's another one. It was E.M. Um, e. Bounds who said this. In fact, I sorry, I put it aside in my notes over here. Let it be said that no two things are more essential to a spirit-filled life than Bible reading and secret prayer. To neglect these all-important duties means leanness of soul, loss of joy, absence of peace, dryness of spirit, and decay in all that pertains to spiritual life. Neglecting these things, prayer and the word, paves the way for apostasy and gives the evil one, i.e. the devil, gives the evil one an advantage such as he is not likely to ignore. That is so true. I remember once hearing Brother Johnny Pope preach a series on prayer. He, Brother Pope, started praying an hour a day when he was in college. And he said, you know, I, I would run into some of my classmates from the Bible college I went to that that they're not they're not in the ministry anymore. He said, in fact, then I, I'd, I'd find out that they're not even married anymore. They went through you know terrible things, some adultery or embezzlement or whatever, and it ruined their ministry and their marriages. And he said, these were friends that I could speak to, frankly. And he said, I'd ask them, well, how did it come to this? And you know, it was always, well, you know, I don't know. And then he'd say this, were you maintaining a meaningful quiet time? Were you maintaining a prayer life? And they'd always say, Brother Johnny, what do you think? Well, what do you think? Of course they weren't. Nobody just drives off the cliff. They just get distracted, and all of a sudden, you know, we... We go over the rails. And I want to tell you, if you neglect prayer, Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Brother Pope said this, I've never known any colleagues who maintained a meaningful prayer life that ended up going into disqualifying sin. Might have happened. I don't know of it, though. He said, isn't that interesting? He said, I'm not saying that prayer is what makes you godly, but he said, it's God that makes you godly. And prayerlessness is your expression of dependence upon God. That was well said. I've never forgotten that lesson. So, number one there is the preeminent priority, Bible study and prayer. But I want you to see this. Number two, the power of piety. Piety, P-I-E-T-Y. We don't hear that word a lot nowadays. Piety, it's verses 5 to 8. Piety was a word um, the Puritans would use it a lot. You know, and I am, I am not Calvinistic in my theology. Well, I will tell you what, a lot of the Puritan fathers had a real sense of the holiness of God, the loftiness of God. And uh, piety was a word for personal holiness, personal godliness. Seems like we've got churches today trying to reach the world by being as much like the world as possible. You know, that doesn't even make sense naturally, does it? In the law of magnetism, you ever take magnets and you try to put the plus pole to the plus and the negative to the negative, and what happens? push apart. How do you get magnets to attract? Flip them around. Positive and negative charges attract each other, right? Uh, How about marriages? Have you ever noticed that most people that get married, marry opposites? Opposites attract? Wow. Because if the other were just like me, then I wouldn't need the other, right? It's amazing how God puts complementary people together in marriages. In in the world, we're not going to attract them by being like them. By the way, we're not going to attract them by being dour and having an ugly disposition either. You know, when the Bible says that little children came to Jesus uh, and they, they flooded to the Lord. I don't see him going, well, there, there, nice, you know, good little child, run along. He wasn't dour. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It, separated doesn't mean, you know, souring in pickle juice. So we're talking about the power of piety. Verses 5 to 8, the apostles realized, okay, we, we need help. So what do they do? Verse 5, they suggested, hey, get us some men to help. We'll focus on prayer and the word. Verse 5, the saying pleased the whole multitude. Hey, when was the last time you were in a church business meeting where every single person was really happy about it? I heard of a guy one time. He would—he was so contrary. He'd vote against everything. And he'd always stand up. He was the squeaky wheel. And this is a true story. And... Um, the pastor found out anytime they'd vote on anything with money, he'd vote it down. And he'd always get up and make a big stink about it. And this is unconventional. I'm not suggesting this. But the pastor finally said to the church treasurer, look, I don't know what everybody gives, but I want to know exactly what that guy's given the last few years. And uh, so I think he told him to go back five years and it amounted to like pocket change. And so before the next business meeting, the pastor called brother so-and-so in the office. He said, brother so-and-so, you've had an awful lot to say in recent business meetings. And he said, I don't normally do this, but I want to find out how much you've been contributing. He said, I'd like you to open your hand, brother. And he handed him a pile of change. He said, I'm returning in full your contribution to this church. And I'm asking now that you would not express any, any dissatisfaction in our meeting tonight. That was the end of that. I <laughs> will tell you, sometimes the squeaky wheels are the ones who are contributing the least. Okay, now, the whole multitude's happy. Wow, that's got to be God. And they chose Stephen. And I circled these names in my Bible. What a list of who's who. Stephen. What do you you know from the New Testament about Stephen? First martyr. He's going to die in the next chapter. He's a deacon. Stephen, a man described as full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. Interesting, too, by the way, how do you get full of faith? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by? Word of God. So you think he had a daily quiet time? Yeah, full of faith. How do you get the Holy Ghost? Well, the minute you're saved, you get the Holy Ghost. Yeah, well, that's true. But he was full of the Holy Ghost. You, you remember in the parable of um, the friend at midnight, you know, when he comes and he says, lend me three loaves. And then he goes, the Lord goes on to say, you know, which of you has a son? If he asks bread, will he give him a uh, scorpion or serpent? You know, if he asks uh, egg, will he give him a serpent, etc." He says, if ye then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? and I was reading, it was John Van Gelderen's book on um, the Holy Spirit, and he was talking about when you see the article there, it's not, uh, I'm sorry, it's without the article there in Greek, and it's the idea of the power of the Holy Spirit. You already have the person of the Holy Spirit when you're saved, but it's his enabling power. How how do you get that? Well, you have not because you. not. So you think Stephen was a man of prayer? Think maybe you should be a person of prayer? There's Stephen. There's Philip. Hey, that's a deacon who doesn't stay a deacon too long. Guess what he ends up doing? He's an evangelist. I like that. In fact, um, he had daughters. I have that too. Uh, Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor, Timon, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas. Oh, notice that guy's a proselyte of Antioch. So he, he was a Gentile. Whom they set before the apostles, and when they prayed, they laid their hands on them. The word of God increased. The number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. A great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Apparently, Stephen was quite the standout at that time of that group. So notice the power of piety. It is interesting to me that in the requirements for pastor and deacons in both 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, the very first thing mentioned about both a pastor and a deacon is they have to be blameless. Now, blameless doesn't mean sinless, I remember when I was in college, and I was in the ministerial class, the preacher boys, we called it, and Brother Shetler was our pastor, Brother Jim Shetler, and he was illustrating blameless. He said, now, obviously, guys, it doesn't mean sinless. None of us would get this job, okay? But, but let, me, let me illustrate. And he called a guy from the floor, and he had these, uh, remember those little mitts that were like Velcro that you would throw a fuzzy tennis ball, and they would stick, and then you'd peel them off, right? So he had a guy up on the other side. He said, come, come, come play catch with me here. And so he's throwing, and... Throwing back and forth, and he said, okay, so that's how this normally works. Then he pulled out a Teflon pan. He said, all right, go go throw it. Doink, 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 doink. He said, oh, you didn't get the stick. He rolled it back to him. Try it again. Doink, 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 doink. He said, now look, Teflon doesn't stick. He said, now look, you guys, none of you, none of us are ever going to be without sin. Doesn't mean that. But, but, it means If somebody hurls an accusation against you, it doesn't stick. It cannot be true of you that you're the hothead. It cannot be true of you that you do things that are off-color, immoral. That cannot be true of you. You've got to have a character that's blameless. You know, that's not just pastors, it's deacons. And I will say this, I believe that every man in the church ought to strive to be qualified to be a deacon. Now, is every man qualified to be a deacon? No, but he ought to be striving to be qualified to be a deacon because the model of the deacons is this is what, this is what basic Christianity looks like. Interesting. The power of piety. I, I point out the power from verse 7. The word of God increased. What does that mean? Volume-wise. Remember, not every book of the Bible had been written yet. In fact, we're just in the beginnings of the New Testament, Right? So the Gospels haven't been written down, and, and the epistles have not been written down. None of that's been written yet. But, but guess what's happening? Who did a lot of that writing? The apostles. Well, they were so busy in church, stamping out fires and other things before, they didn't have time to give themselves to the Word. But now all of a sudden, guess what? The Word of God gets to increase. Aren't you glad Peter had time to write 1 and 2 Peter? Aren't you glad John had time to write the Gospel of John, First, Second, Third John, the Revelation? Aren't you glad Paul had time to write his epistles? How about James, the Lord's half-brother, having time to write the book of James? You know what? If deacons hadn't come along to assist, the apostles wouldn't have had time to write. The word of God increased. Notice this. Not only that, the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. What's that mean? People are getting saved. You remember reading in the book of Acts that the Lord added to the church daily? Such as should be saved. Can you imagine being in a church where people are getting saved every day? That's what's happened there. And not only that, it says a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Who were the priests? Yeah, yeah, they're the the Jewish religious leaders. In fact, they're the crowd that weeks before had been saying, crucify him, crucify him. Many of them are now getting saved. The power of piety. Number three, though, I want you to see this a pleasing personality, a pleasing personality. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then there rose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, them of Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Okay, so notice they, they don't argue with the apostles. They decided to pick a fight with Stephen, one of the deacons, and they can't even, they can't even resist his wisdom. He's good at giving an answer of the reason of the hope that lieth within him. But not only giving an answer, notice Peter said you should be able to give such an answer with meekness. And notice this, they weren't able to resist the spirit by which he spake. Let me give you a few um, principles from Scripture that we need to contend for the faith without being contentious in spirit. Contend for the faith without being contentious in spirit. How about this, Proverbs thirteen ten: only by pride cometh contention. You know, if your marriage is marked by contention, I'll tell you something true about your marriage. There's pride. Yeah, I'm glad you told her. She needed to hear that night tonight, brother. <laughs> and you illustrate my point, don't you? And yeah, when my marriage has contention, and it does, there are times, it's pride. And a lot of times it is I, and I've had to go back to Angela and say, honey, I'm sorry, I was wrong you please forgive You know, um, I remember years ago, I went to a marriage conference, and um, it was uh, Sarah Thompson's grandfather, Jerry Wass, was speaking. And Pastor Wass has been a music pastor for years and years. And he and his wife have a wonderful marriage. And I remember him saying, you know, my wife and I haven't had a crossword, and I can't remember how long. And with him, I, I believe that to be true. And Angela looked at each other and thought, I couldn't say that, about a month that has gone by. And I don't mean this to be ugly. I said this during the parenting conference here. You know, my wife and I are both firstborns. We have locked horns. Can can you imagine that? I'm a preacher, and she's a preacher's daughter. Oh, we can get into some good ones sometimes. Not good meaning good either. Okay, and and there are times I've had to go back and say, honey, I'm sorry. Sometimes with tears, I am wrong. In fact, I'll tell you, a month ago, I had to apologize to my daughter, my 12-year-old daughter. Um, Angela and I had had a, tiff going on between us. And I remember I say, I was on the couch, tears come down my face. I said, Linnea, I'm sorry. You heard mom and dad arguing and that was not right. Uh, it was wrong. And honey, will you please forgive me? Now I'm not telling you that to be syrupy. And I'm not telling you that because I'm trying to be impressive. I'm telling you that because the one preaching to you needs the same truth being given to you. When was the last time you went to somebody and said, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? Only by pride cometh contention. How about this one? Proverbs 15 verse 1, A soft answer turneth away wrath. You know, sometimes when the volume just gets turned up, have you ever just tried the opposite? You lower your voice, you speak in a whisper, it just de-escalates everything. Soft answer, turneth away wrath. How about this one, Proverbs sixteen twenty one. the sweetness of the lips increaseth learning. You know, if people like you, they'll learn better from you. I had an English teacher in, in high school, Mrs. Cook. She might as well have been a college teacher. First day, ninth grade, she comes in, plops this stapled set of papers on our desk. We said, Mrs. Cook, what is this? She said, this is a syllabus for the year. I, syllabus? I mean, who heard of a syllabus in high school? You know, I would find those in college, but... Syllabus is a brief statement of the main point or objective of a course of study. We had a syllabus in my English class in high school. She puts it down. She says, now, the end of the year will come, and and smiling, she was just sweetest lady. She was the best English teacher. She'd say, some of you will come to me at the end of the year, and you'll say, Mrs. Cook, why did you give me a C? She said, honey, I didn't give you a C. You read this paper, you'll know exactly what you need to do to get a C or a B or if you want an A. But when it's all said and done, you won't come to me and tell me that I gave it to you. You'll know why you earned it. And she's smiling the whole time she's saying it. I'll tell you what, I I became um, proficient in English because of my English teacher in high school. She said, Rich, you're going to be a preacher. Listen, nobody will ever be turned off by proper grammar, but you will lose a lot of people if you use improper grammar. Make sure you master the language you're going to communicate in. That's well said. Well, listen, pride, though, if you come across highfalutin, that's a turnoff too, isn't it? How about this one, James 1, 19 and 20? Wherefore, my bro- beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. That's James 1, 19 and 20. And then there's this one, Ephesians four fifteen. speaking the truth in love. I'll give you another transparent story tonight. I think it'll help the purpose. I was a uh, college representative in training for PCC. And back then, the man who was in charge of promotions at Pensacola Christian was a fellow named Reggie Sellers, a dear friend. And Mr. Sellers, now retired, lives in Pennsylvania, but I have thanked him often for the investment he made in my life. And one of the chief investments was, I remember, I'm a junior in college. I'm being trained to tour with travel groups that summer to preach And back then, they would bring us to an empty room. It probably had, I don't know, about 150 chairs. They're all empty. And I'm preaching to empty chairs, trying to imagine people being there. And I've got to practice the message. And they would check us on things like uh, doctrine and delivery and demeanor. That's my outline. Okay, so they want to make sure it's good and we're representing them rightly. And all of a sudden, I have been through this one message at least nine times probably on my 10th time going through it and i thought if he stops me today i think i'm going to scream will this ever be good enough you know and i'm rolling along in this message and he says okay let's just stop right there and i'm about to just think he said rich i just come sit down for a minute i want to talk to you i said is there a problem with the message he said no the message is good you the message is approved you can use the message but i we need to talk about our larger problem here come sit down he said, you, you don't know what your problem is, do you? Have you all ever had a problem you didn't know what it was? If you're not married, that may be true. If you're married, you'll find out, okay? So I was not married, and I didn't know I had a problem. And so I, I came and sat down, and my, uh, my supervisor said, your problem is that you're an up-and-outer I said, Mr. Sellers, I'm not trying to be a smart aleck. I don't know what up and outer means. He said, Rich, it's like you're up here on a pedestal and you're looking down at everybody else thinking they need to get up here and get right with God. I said, Mr. Sellers, I don't mean for it to come across like that. He said, I I don't doubt that you don't mean it to be that, but that's how it comes across. He said, listen, Rich, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And you got to get a handle on this. I said, Mr. Sellers, what about what, what about Jesus, though, you know, pr- preaching the truth? He said, did you ever notice the common people heard him gladly? In fact, if you read, Rich, he, he came full of grace and truth. I told you the other night, my spiritual gift is prophet. I mean, in Romans 12, I'm not getting revelation from God. I'm motivated by thus set the Lord, black and white, it's right or wrong, you know. That's my motivation. But that's not an excuse for being bereft of mercy. It's no wonder God had me marry a mercy, right? That often happens. And um, Jesus came full of grace and truth. He said, you need to figure this out. And he said, we're done for today. I hope you'll go back to your residence hall and think about it. Well, you can be sure I did. In fact, I went back. Thankfully, roommates were gone. I got down by the bunk bed there in the room, and I sobbed my eyes out. Lord, I don't know how to do this. And I I say this tongue-in-cheek, but it's, it's as if the Lord was applauding from heaven, like finally we're getting somewhere. That wouldn't be his way. But, you know... Finally, he's figuring this out. And I said, Lord, I can't do this. And that's it. What Jesus said, without me, you can do what? Nothing. But I can do all things through Christ, which strengthened me. And I'll tell you what, that was a breaking point in my life. Jesus said this, except a corn of wheat fall on the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it beareth much fruit. I There was a dying that was going on. It wouldn't be the last time I'd go through some death to self issue, but it was one of the first times. I thought of this, you know, it's like a set of scales. And if you have truth, like my tendency, if you had truth at the expense of mercy, you have callousness. You ever get a callous on your fingers? You don't don't feel anything there. It's desensitized. Uh, Truth at the expense of mercy, you have callousness. On the other hand, if you have mercy at the expense of truth, you have compromise. We have a lot of churches that will quickly compromise the truth in the interest of mercy. But you know what you need? An equal proportion of grace and truth. When you have convictions with compassion, that's what changes character. You need an equal dosage of mercy and truth. How do you get that? Only God can give you that. So, a pleasing personality. But then notice this, finally. Number four, a pretentious prosecution. A pretentious prosecution. I'll give you a recent example. It was the January 6th committee with Nancy Pelosi. You know what a pretentious prosecution is? It's a kangaroo court. You don't bring anybody else in who's going to give you evidence from the other side. You just stack the deck in favor of how you want to spin the narrative. And please don't think that I think it's okay to go in and break up the Capitol. But, you know, did any of you see through the fraud of let's just, it's all Trump. You know, all of our woes are tr- He's not even in office now, folks. It's all Trump. He did it. Pretentious prosecution. It's a kangaroo court. All right, read on in verses um, 11 to 15. Then they suborned men. They bribed men, hired them out. Suborned men which said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him. This is Stephen. Brought him to the council. That's the Sanhedrin. They set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Man, I've wondered. If I'm in a position where the whole religious world is leveling false charges with venom and vitriol against me, would I be sitting there with an angelic-looking countenance? I know me, my flesh would want to be like, my father's going to deal with you, you know, that would would be the fleshly rich. What's Stephen got? A cherubic-like countenance. It's a pretentious prosecution. Their accusations against him couldn't stick. There's nothing to them. They take him out in the next chapter, and even as they're stoning him to death, he looks up to heaven and says, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. What? That's godliness. That's not carnality. How did he get there? Well, I want to finish with this tonight. I, I once heard an illustration. It's one of the best illustrations I've, I've heard. It was from a secular source, it was at the time the, the CEO of the Nike Athletic Corporation. He was speaking at a conference on time management. And he said, you know, sometimes we, we think that there's just no way to uh, make everything fit into a day. He said, I want you to imagine that your day is like uh, this empty glass here. He said, and how do we, how do we typically fill our day? He said, well, well, we'll schedule meetings. You know, We'll have maybe a staff meeting with all the higher-ups coming out of town and Let's say that goes from like eight thirty in the morning till twelve noon. Maybe we go on a luncheon then with some executives and that goes from twelve thirty to two. And you know, later on maybe we have a inner office meeting and that, that takes up the rest of the day till about four thirty. He said, Now the question is here, is the day full? Well, no. So then he took out some rocks, and he began to fill these little rocks in. He said, what do these little rocks represent? Well, maybe these are quick phone calls that need to be made. Maybe it's just a brief conversation with somebody in management. You know, maybe it's your meeting with your marketing crew. And so he starts filling them in. He said, now, is the day full? You well, can still see some crevices in there. So then he, then he took some sand, and he began to pour it in here. And he said, okay, so let's say this sand represents, you know, maybe paper clipping some things together, uh, dictating a quick letter for your secretary, uh, maybe making a call home, you know, picking up your dry cleaning on the way to the house. He says, okay, so is the day full? A lot of people are like, "Mm." well, then he pulled out some water. I'm not going to do it because I don't want to make a mess of the pastor's pulpit here. But if you took this water, you'd still fill in a few spots, right? Now he held it up. He said, okay, so what's the point to the object lesson? Someone raised the hand and said, you can always fit more into your day than you thought. He said, well, that would be the obvious, and that's what you would think. He said, but that's not the point here. He said, the point here is if you don't put the big rocks in first, you'll never fit them in later on. You got to schedule your day around the priorities. Now, that's a good point for people in business, but let me tell you, that is a great point for people in a walk with God. Because although the bulk of your time as a layperson may not be your Bible study and prayer, if you don't put the big rocks in first, you're not going to fit them in later on. The preeminent priority will give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. I wonder, are people seeing in your life the fruit of the proper priorities? Let's bow our heads together. You listened really well. Thank you. Father, I'm grateful for the way music prepared hearts tonight. I'm grateful for the songs that we've sung by way of hymn. Grateful for the attentiveness that people gave to your word. Thank you for the Bible. It's perfection. Thank you even for illustrations that help turn on the lights. Especially, dear Holy Spirit, thank you that you are our teacher. Without you, there will be no lasting fruit. Would you please arrest our attention and change our lives? Our heads are about. I want to ask you this. Did God do a little searching in your heart tonight? How many would say, I was convicted of the need to make the Bible a key priority in my walk with God? I don't have a regular time with God. I, I need to make it a regular habit of spending time in the Word. Would you lift your hand tonight? I need that. Yeah, amen, a lot of hands. Let me suggest to you, start with something manageable. Could, could you start with a chapter a day? How about you read through the New Testament this year? Why don't you start Matthew 1 tomorrow? Hey, don't get bogged down the first parts of genealogy. You know, don't, don't. All Scripture is profitable. All Scripture is not equally interesting, okay? That's not to be disparaging of Scripture. Um, you know, mechanical manuals are not as interesting as uh, novels, you know, and the encyclopedia is not as interesting as some, um, you know, vivid life history but there's a place for it all. So you'll, you'll skim through the genealogy, but then you're going to get into, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. Could, could you read a chapter a day? Sure you could. How about this? How about you get out a notebook and write some things down? Well, what if you uh, you say, well, I, I, I just won't glean that much that way. How about, how about a chapter of Proverbs a day? That's a good way to do it. 31 chapters in Proverbs, one for each day of the month. How about you take the day of the month and read the chapter of Proverbs to go along with that, Right? a good way to do it. The key is find, make, not find, make the time to prioritize God. How many of you would say, I was really challenged by the need to focus on prayer in my life? Would you lift your hand? I needed that. Okay. Amen. How about the same thing? Could you, could you carve out five or 10 minutes as a starting point? Why don't you do that? Last night, long after church was over, I walked across the street to the school. I went down to the park out here to the left, and I walked around. And I, I spent about 45 minutes walking and praying. And that's I like to do it at night that everybody's doing their thing, and it's quiet. You might be the, the early morning person. Hey, how about get out, take a walk, and it's just you and God, and talk to them. How about get your cup of coffee and sit in your back porch there, and you listen to those birds, but how about you listen to God and talk to God? Let me ask you this: How many of you we went through the the balance of a godly personality, mercy and truth equally proportioned? Anybody here beside me convicted by those truths on one side or the other? Who else beside me would say, "Yeah, I needed that tonight." Yeah, yeah I'm seeing children and grandparents alike raise their hands. Let's do this. Would you look up here? Let's stand together. Going to have our pianists come, and I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, and I, I'd invite you to come tonight. God gives grace to the humble. I. I want to give a gospel invitation, and I will explain that as we finish. But let me start with believers. Judgment must begin at the house of God. Tonight, would you say, Lord, I have tried so many times to really get into the habit of reading your word and praying. Simple things, but it's the foundation on which all the Christian life rests. You think if you ask God, Lord, teach us to pray, he might answer that. He did with the apostles. You think if you say, Lord, help me to get consistent in my quiet time. You think he might help you with that? Now remember, a just man falls seven times, but he does what? Rise up again. Yeah. Okay, so let's bow our heads and have our pianists play. Would you come tonight? There's something specific that God drew to your attention. The front row is open, the platform here. I'll be quiet for a moment. I'd urge you to come as God's prompting your heart. Lord, I don't want to come out of the meetings just the same. I want to be changed. And I know lasting change is going to come through consistent time with you and and letting your spirit change my spirit. Maybe, Maybe you need to be like that kid in college I told you about. That kid would be me that went to the dorm room there and cried, literally cried out to God, Lord, I cannot do this. Yeah, he knew that. He's waiting for me to say, Lord, without you, I can do nothing. Please change my personality, God. Please change my spirit. Maybe there's a person you need to go to and get things right. A spouse, you know, if, if thou bring thy gift to the altar and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, go thy way. First, be reconciled to thy brother, then come and offer thy gift. Maybe that needs to happen tonight. One last focus I'll give you before we finish. You can't have fellowship with God if you've never established a relationship with God. Okay, tonight we're talking about fellowship with God. But how do you enter into a relationship with God? Well, it's just like family. You know, there are three ways you can become part of a family. You can be born into a family, you can be adopted into a family, or you can be married into a family. God uses all those pictures of the new birth. You must be born again. The church is the bride of Christ. We're adopted in Him you must be born again. You've got to come to the place where you realize I'll never get to heaven trying to be good. I can only get to heaven trusting Jesus Christ as my Savior. I realize I'm a guilty sinner and He's a perfect Savior. He died on the cross to pay for my sins. His blood was the price. His resurrection was the assurance that God had accepted the sacrifice. By trusting Him, I will be saved. Is there anybody here tonight you'd have to say, honestly, I really don't know if I would go to heaven or not. It concerns me I want to have a relationship with God. I'd like to know that I'm saved. I want to know how I can be forgiven. Would you lift your hand? Is there anybody like that? Pray for me. I don't know that, but I want to. I want to. Anybody at all? All right. May look up my way? Thank you for playing. I'm looking at the clock. Okay, it's 8.09. I'm trying my best to have you out of here no later than 8.05 to 8.10. We did okay tonight, okay? Thank you for your good attention. Remember in the parable of the sower, when the word is preached, Satan wants to come and steal the seed. He's the bird, right? Snatch it away. Or cares, riches, and pleasures can choke the word. Don't let the word get choked. Let God have his way in your heart. Pastor, you want me to close or do you want to close? You'll close. Pastor will come. Thank you. It's like it's time to close. (laughs) Uh, Thank you simple truths with profound effect. I hope we take that message tonight and don't let it just sit in our minds, but go home and apply it to our hearts and make a strong impact upon your life. Can I uh, pray together? Then I give a quick announcement and we dismissed. okay? Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for the message tonight. Lord, we all know our spirit bears witness with your spirit, what is truth and what is error. And you've produce truth tonight in our lives. I pray we would apply it to our lives, whether it be time in the word or time in prayer or just examining our own piety that makes sure we have a walk with you that's pleasing to you most of all. But Father, we just pray you'll bless upon each one now as they go a separate ways. We look forward to tomorrow night and hearing more truth that can change our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.